You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 52 is Kim Rancourt. Now, Kim has been involved with the New York City music scene for a long time. He's really a New York fixture. His main gig is giving tours of the city. You're right now listening to East Side Story from his late 80s, early 90s band, When People Were Shorter and Lived Near the Water. This was from their last album, Bill Kennedy's Showtime, 1993. And yes, you might recognize it as a cover of a 1969 Bob Seger song. This band did only covers, despite the fact that Kim is a prolific poet. We're going to be focusing in our discussion on his 2017 solo release, Plum Plum, which is made up of original songs, which he put together with his dream band, the key collaborator and producer and friend and fellow archivist being Don Fleming, who's a very well-known producer, having worked with Sonic Youth, Hole, Teenage Fan Club, Alice Cooper, etc., was in a number of bands, including the early 90s band Gumball. Also in the dream band is Joe Bouchard on bass from the Blue Oyster Cult, guitar god Gary Lucas that I interviewed for this podcast, and Steve Shelley, who is a member of Sonic Youth. And we'll discuss the songs Circles Gotta Go and Arkansas is Burning, After that, we will turn back to a 1996 album, We Are the Rage, that Kim did with Jad Fair. The band was called Jad Fair and the Shaper Arama. The song is I Comb My Hair With My Hand. Finally, we'll listen to Claudine, another song from Plum Plum. Hey, Kim, it's Mark Lintzenmeyer. Hey, man. Yeah, so that was When People Were Short and Lived Near the Water. That was late 80s through 93. That was the last... Late 80s, early 90s. It was a group I put together with a bunch of people who had never really played in a band before. Well, a couple had since when they were really, really young. Bunch of doom coughs sitting around doing nothing. I said, you guys are so talented. We should get together and do some covers. And we had no intention of playing live whatsoever. But by popular demand, we started playing a little bit out in WNEW. FM here, Vince Skelso, the great disc jockey here in New York, heard us and started playing the heck out of us. And that was it. That band only played covers, the three albums and a couple of EPs and cassettes that we did. That was on purpose, perhaps setting myself up to later on go on to write songs, which probably I should have been doing then as well. I noticed, I mean, you did a whole album of Porgy and Best songs. Like, it's a very interesting selection. Was it Roomstick Cowboy? These 1960s ones, The Singing Nun, were these kind of things that had sifted into your subconscious when you were a kid? Is that why you picked these things? Well, Broomstick Cowboy, of course, came from a record of Bobby Goldsboro. And there was a guy by the name of Charlie Midnight. He's Great songwriter, great lyricist. He wrote Living in America for James Brown, uh, If I Could Dream About You, from Streets of Fire. And he came to see us at CBGB's, and he said, you guys, you should do a record of some really bad covers. And I said, yeah, who do you think we should do? He said, Bobby Goldsboro. And I said, you hit it on the, on the head. And we did. And R.J. Smith from The Village Voice went down to Georgia and played it for Bobby Goldsboro. And his quote was, he was knocked out. So we were a little surprised. We didn't know quite how he would take it. But Porgy and Bess was a labor of love. I studied George Gershwin for a year before we did it, accumulated well over 150 different copies of it. 
And when we were going to release it on Shimmy Disc, all of a sudden Kramer got a cease and desist saying that we couldn't do it. And we weren't quite sure why, since I had so many versions of it. Miles Davis, Vienna Boys co-hire copies I had, and we studied. And then I got a call from Leopold Gadowski III, whose mother was Francine Gershwin, the sister of George and Ira, and his father invented color film for Kodak, Leopold Gadowski. So you're talking about a little bit of money there. And he said, I want you to come up to my estate in Clinton, Connecticut and talk about this because I like the record a whole lot. I said, well, how did you get it? It isn't even out yet. He said, well, we got a copy of it. So I went up to his estate in Clinton, Connecticut, met with the lawyers, and they uh, didn't seem a problem because we weren't asking for a grand licensing deal. We weren't going to do the entire record, you know, live or perform it anywhere. So they let us release it. And what it taught us was what a genius George Gershwin was and what a great lyricist Ira was indeed and led me for the rest of my life, even this afternoon out in Coney Island, listening to uh, Rhapsody in Blue and some of his early r- rare recordings. So it was, uh, it was a learning experience musically for me. And I think that we did probably one of the, the best versions of it ever. Let's fast forward to get to the current album. I mean, and so it seems like being in bands has been an intermittent thing as a side product. You haven't gone pro and tried to tour around or, or am I getting that wrong? Well, we had the opportunity to do lots of tours and things. We decided to stay in New York. This is our home. We decided to stay. We have ventured out on the East Coast, never played the West Coast in those bands. And now I have a band, of course, where everybody is so famous. And they are professional musicians, and they're all over the place. And it's so hard just to get them into one room. And we were able to do that last month at the Bowery Electric. And it was amazing. They were so wonderful. All of us, we went backstage after the show, and everybody looked at each other, and we said, we got to do this again. So there's a possibility that perhaps I'd like to bring it to Europe and they have so many connections over there. Thurston Moore is over there. Maybe I'd do some shows over in, in England and Amsterdam in the future. But I've always stayed close to home. I've always worked on projects pretty much here in New York. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at in terms of that the reason the Plum Plum has is your relationship with Don Fleming, who was one of the guitarists on this and produced the record. Absolutely. So say a little about, because it's just not at all knocking any of your past work or whatever, but what an enormous opportunity to be playing with this group of people. So say a little about, like, why did you get to do this? I knew everyone really well, except for Joe Bouchard. I did a John Zorn Cobra, which I had many, many years ago at the Knitting Factory that I, I met Gary Lucas. Joe Phillips is the executive producer. He was the other singer in the shorters up front. Steve Shelley, I've known for years and years and years since he first moved to New York. I didn't know Joe Bouchard, and I'm sure happy I met him because he is not only a musical genius, but truly one of the sweetest people in the world. Don, I knew from Shimmy Disc days. He lived below Noise, New York, and we became fast, fast friends. And he said, you know, you're turning 60, you should do a solo record. I said, that's cool. I got tons of lyrics, you know, that I've been writing for over the last two, three years. So I let him see him, and he said, yeah, we'll record 22 of them and eventually pare them down. And we pared them down to 10 because uh, the last David Bowie record, Lazarus had 10. So Don said, that's good enough for us, too. And it's amazing, the process of recording with him, which was so easy because I'm not a musician. I am the worst musician you've ever met in your life, but I'm able to put people together, convey exactly what's upstairs here and they did i think and there's another 12 songs out there that are amazing that may never see the light of day and that's too bad but working with them was a dream come true and that's because of don and the 
relationship that we have. I would never have any of my music produced by anybody else but him. We worked on many musical projects together. We produced shows at the public theater together. We've done a lot of stuff. And we're both archivists here in New York. And he had me archive the Lou Reed collection for Laurie Anderson last year, which was truly rewarding. And that was in Safe and Sound in the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center where I am employed as a tour guide during the art and the architecture tour. So I know Lou would have been thrilled being the quiz essential New Yorker that all the hard work that we did going through his mementos and his writings. I was in charge of the paper because I was in the printing business for 20 years. Probably 80% of the records you have in your collection came through Ross Ellis in New York where I worked. So they said since you worked on in the printing business, you can do the posters and the letters, and that's what I was in charge of. So Don and I have a lot of things going besides the music, and we're just old, old friends now for almost 30 years. So I think he did an exquisite job on the record, and he worked really, really hard on it for two years, um, longer probably than he's worked on any record in the past, I guess, in tribute to our wonderful friendship that we have. Well, let's go ahead and play Circles Gotta Go, the first track that we're going to play off of there without further introduction, and then you can reveal after they hear it what it's actually about. Okay.
All right. So you told me on the phone what this is about, and I would not have guessed for the life of me, but go, go ahead and give your <laughs> description again. I was a big Arbuckmaster Fuller fan when I was in high school and college. And what I learned from him is that America is hung up, as Frank Zappa would say, on square houses on square blocks with square windows. Uh, it's more advantageous to use circles. Of course, geodesic domes were very popular back in the day in Michigan. When I lived there, people were building them left and right, and I found that they accommodated the space much better than a square. And the circle's got to go as kind of a commentary on America not thinking that way, thinking about squares and not perhaps embracing, which I admit many architects are beginning to do now, the circle. Does that make sense? <laughs> How can you stack person after person on top of each other if they're domes? Exactly. The space within a dome is cooler anyways than inside, more magical than inside a square bedroom on a square block in the Lower East Side. So that was kind of my commentary on... <laughs> on America's views on architecture. <laughs> I thought this was a fun one to lead off with because your main role here is you're the poet. You, know, you had a huge number of lyrics that were then pared down for this, but you're very sparing. You know, So this song is mostly one phrase and variations on it repeated again and again and again. And that happens a couple times on the record, but it's so energetic, like it works so well in the context. And then you actually do let it slip toward the end. Something about buildings, <laughs> talking about the girls got to go all across the skyline. So, okay, there, I could have maybe guessed there. I don't know how it got there. <laughs> maybe draw a square, maybe grow some hair. These things that, that sound even like, were some of those bits improvised on top of this? Or Absolutely. I just kept going. I mean, the song was originally like 15 minutes long or something like that. And Don cut it up and chose the pieces that he liked best. And that maybe grow some hair <laughs> ended up in there. I was a little surprised, but I, I like it. And a lot of these songs ended up being protest songs. And especially with the state of America right now, they didn't plan to be, but now with the events that are transpiring here and around the world, it was kind of funny that a lot of these songs dealt directly with what's going on in society today. When you say that in the abstract, you know, it makes me think of early Bob Dylan or these kind of, especially given you're the poet, I would sort of expect someone to come up with two full pages of lyrics and kind of have to go. But the fact that this works as a protest song, you know, you don't put two pages of stuff on a sign. The fact that it has that catchy, that it's almost like an advertising slogan or something like that. That's great. I really like that, that you said that. I mean, it's Kim's Jingles. Yeah, so say something about the process of how you would come up with, I mean, is this the kind of thing that you're just walking around between your tours or whatever and that is just going through your head? I haven't said this to any of the reviewers or people who have been interviewing me before, but most of this was written at the beach. Sitting down, getting a little out there, and staring at the ocean out in Coney Island. So I would say about 50% to 60% of the lyrics were just came to me out there sitting at the beach. Other things that are inspiring in New York. You see something and you say, wow, you got to write a song about that. Or you hear a, a snippet of a conversation on the subway or on the bus and you say, wow, that's brilliant. They would never think that that would fit into a context of a song, what they just said right now. So I kind of do that a little bit, steal a little bit from the public. Maybe not like Bob Dylan does, but <laughs> who I admire very much. And I wouldn't be in New York probably if it wasn't for him and a couple other people, maybe. 
when this kind of thing would come to you, is it a matter of it's the words themselves or is it the actual rhythmic expression? The da, 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 da. No, it is the rhythmic expression. It's when I hear a phrase that I like, I immediately think to myself, how in the world can I rhyme? It has really nothing to do with the approach that rappers write their lyrics, but more along the line of Hallmark greeting cards or one of my inspirations who I collaborated a couple times with, as you know, Jad Fair. His simplicity in the writing and how he tries to be original with his rhymes. And I learned a lot from doing that. So it's always, if I hear something, I'm always going to try to rhyme it with something, but in a more 1930s and 1950s kind of way. And you said it was difficult to get all these guys in a room together, but it really sounds like this band you know, is really playing off each other. And just the fact that the structure, if you get a bunch of professional musicians and you have a good producer that is like, okay, this is how long the verse is. This is how, but this sounds more organic, like it grew out of a jam. They did, all of it. I basically, I went in with them, showed them the lyrics, maybe whistled a little ditty on how I think the chorus might go or something like that. And it was really Don, you know, who said, yeah. It goes like this and came up with the structure of the song and then just let them jam on it, like you said. All of them were pretty much jams, not so much structures, like is an evidence of Arkansas is burning. Let's get that on the table so we can talk about that too, since that's the other main discussion song from this album. Certainly one of the top favorites on the record, that's for sure of mine. Yeah, very different tone to this one. Can you say a couple words before we play it to them of what this is about, where this came from? Arkansas is burning, again, not meant to be a protest song, but ended up being a protest song from when I started it. I was a song of the gloomy South and the spiritual South. Arkansas, I've only been through Arkansas once, and that was on a Greyhound bus. And I've probably never said this before either, but while we were traveling at night through Arkansas on our way to Memphis, Tennessee in 1976, all of a sudden, the bus driver, we looked over on the right, and a giant house was on fire, almost a plantation-style type house, burning, burning, burning. And our bus driver got out of his seat, ran into the house, and saved two people who lived in the house. Brought them out to the front lawn. The fire trucks pulled up. We got on the bus and kept going. And if he didn't even get a picture uh, taken, get a statement, and where all of us were in totally in awe of his courage. And that has a little bit something about the burning down there. There are biblical references in it. I'm not a religious guy whatsoever, so I try to make them up, I think maybe. But I think it's very poignant right now, especially with the politics that are going on down there. Nothing's changed. To me, nothing's changed. I mean, it's a little bit better. But the political climate, you know, in the South right now needs to be changed drastically by, of course, the people who are running the show. I don't usually get into politics or religion during interviews, but that's how it kind of ended up. I drink from the sour tree and now the leaves are inside of me. I drink from the hollow tree and now the leaves are inside of me. The sacred tree inside of me. I eat from the sour ground and now it's dirt inside of me that holy ground inside of me I feel it in me to find a 
no judgment inside of me. But I hear the hollow sounds. Now I hear it definitely me. Well, a shot of after speaking to me. Yeah, so this is a very Jim Morrison, Shaman kind of vibe. Well, that's very nice of you to say that. You know, I've got a couple of references so far and a couple of reviews of Jim Morrison. A lot of kids today don't like the Doors and don't like Jim Morrison. I was a big Doors fan. I respected Jim very, very much. And I loved it when the punk movement started and people liked the Doors. Iggy loved the Doors. Patti Smith loved the Doors. I loved the Doors, too. I thought he was a brilliant songwriter and a brilliant lyricist and one of the unique 
more unique bands. But the more I hear lately from young people is they don't really like them at all. I'm surprised about that since they were so unique and that, that Jim was such a just a hulking figure of intense beauty. I mean, yeah, wonderful, wonderful lyricist who could never hold a match to and left us, of course, too young. And perhaps that led to his the hero worship that they have of him back when I was young. I never got a chance to see them. I think they played Detroit a couple times, but I never got a chance to see them. And that was a shame because uh, when I see the clips now, I just saw one the other day. I found it quite moving when he was on American Bandstand doing the Crystal Ship. I mean, what's better than that? At least we got the more direct ancestor this looks to be sonic youth i mean besides that you're actually playing with the sonic youth drummer here but just the choice of chords and there's certainly plenty of sonic youth songs that have that sort of spoken meditative but like a crazy windstorm they were good friends and you know they even rented out noise new york for a portion of recording so you know i saw them all the time and steve you know i was one of the first people he met when he came from michigan because he's a michigander too he was he's in strange fruit there and they brought him in he was a I thought a, a light for them. Bob Bird is still a great friend of mine, but a different kind of drummer. And Steve brought his, I don't know, effervescence onto this record. And as I've told, and he laughed about it, I think it's the best thing he's ever done. I truly do. And playing with him the other night, he was amazing. You know, Thurston came to our show. There's so many great 80s and 90s guitarists there. There's like Mark C. from Live Skull. You know what I mean? All these people turned out. It was such a night of love. That was the thing about it. It was just love, love, love all night. People were so nice. Julia Kafer, it's who I was in. After that, it's all gravy with, you know, it was a DJ for, for the night. And, you know, Thurston came up to me and said, you know, after we played, he said, you know, that's probably the most authentic New York City rock and roll that, you know, I've heard in the last 20 years. So <laughs> that was quite a compliment. Yeah. So if these things came out of long jams and then got cut up in editing, what was the process then to get that back to something that could be played in front of people and would resemble what's on the album? Like, how close was the live show? Well, a couple of songs like Claudine and Leave Your Light were, were easy, of course, to do since they were ballads. And I think that live... It was Don and, you know, we haven't mentioned much about Gary Lucas and his improvisational skills are incredible, as you know. The both of them being foils, Don playing one way, real Detroit style, and and Gary playing real beefart avant-garde style, but being able to change it anytime he wants. It's the beauty of Gary Lucas. He can change the style of music in in mid-song. And that's kind of what they did live, you know, like Don and him going back and forth, not trying to outduel each other, but trying to impact the sound so it was different than anybody's ever heard before. And I think that it was, actually. Um, it, it all gelled beautifully, and with Joe Bouchard playing bass, I mean, monster. Absolutely amazing. I've told the story before, but we needed a keyboard part. We recorded it at Sonic Youth Studio in Hoboken, and Joe Bouchard plugged in his bass to his laptop and played the piano part on his bass. That's how good Joe is. Yeah, this has a little more structure than the first one. I mean, you've got this open meditative verse and then you get heavy with the Arkansas burning part, no matter how much the rest expands into an open-ended jam session. I mean, I could easily see all these going to nine minutes, 15 minutes or something, but you've got these certain flag points there that you raise that, okay, now we're back to the chorus. Some of the songs could have gone half an hour live, (laughs) you know what I mean? Truly without them getting boring. 
Don just knew what to do after the recording, so he was able to weave. You know, some of the songs are live all the way through. Just boom, did them. Maybe we did two takes of the songs, but some he really, really worked on like a mosaic and put them together. And I think that's one of the things he does best. And I don't think he's had the opportunity with a lot of records that he's produced to do that to take a group who he doesn't really know and screw with their sound so that (laughs) it's not what they intended. He always went in the studio knowing intuitively exactly what they intended. Here, we didn't. Here, it was like, okay, Don, have fun. And he did. Well, and the fact that you've got, besides these extended jam sessions in, I mean, this one is pretty under control, at least in this in this studio version. But then you've got, which one is the instrumental? Is it the thing that is? Well, the thing that is has words. Not too many. So we talked about your first band, but then we've got, before this project, the interim, that we've got three albums and credited to Shapiro Rama. I actually bought the Japanese import version of We Are the Rage 1996, so I could hear wow. the context of this, a collaboration with Jad Fair. Not too many of those around. Yes, and 23 songs, just a lot of chaos on this album. There's a lot, of, a lot of sounds. I'm not so familiar with the rest of Jad's output. Can you say a little about before we play I Comb My Hand With My Hair about that project in this song. Don, again, stepped up to the plate and said, you know, you should really do a record with Jad. You know, and I said, I would love to do a record with Jad. I'm such a big Jad fan. So we did. And I learned about songwriting from him and we mixed lyrics and I Comb My Hair With My Hand was one that I actually brought in to the studio. Kind of a, I thought it was going to be more of a 50s hillbilly rave up kind of song and Jad completely turned it around and added his unique stamp to it. Got some good airplay and got some good reviews about that song in general. Making the two records with Jad were absolutely amazing. I hope we can do another in our lifetime. He lives down in Austin, Texas now and he has animals and still playing. Half Japanese is still playing. I think they're going to be playing a festival called Shake More that David Fair curates every year. That's coming up, I think, next month. And I think that Half Jap are going to be playing there. But Jad's from Michigan, too. So we had the same sensibilities. We grew up listening to the same music and his wife, Patty, as well. And it was a real Michigan thing. We got out there a little bit on that record with members of the Boredoms. Actually, John Zorn put us together with, and that was really great working with them on that record. Certainly one of my, my favorite records that I've done.
This is kind of in terms of its main riff and its melodic appeal is one of the most immediate and catchy tunes on here. Jad is a psycho on it, right? <laughs> well, the both of you, the fact that, okay, that you came in with these lyrics and then and you put out your verse and then he just repeats the same thing. And then some of the time you're singing while he's yelling it or vice versa or in the chorus, it sounds like you're just two lines ahead of him and then he repeats you. <laughs> I got to tell you why. Because Don put me in a booth and put Jad all the way on the other side of the room so I couldn't see him and then recorded it. We already had had the instrument recorded. We did the vocals last and that's why it sounds that way. I'm kind of amazed that you're tucked into these vocal booths. You know, this is kind of common with circles and some of the other stuff that it sounds kind of like a punk party tune or something. It is a punk party tune. You hit it on the head. If I was going to describe it, that's exactly what it is. And are you doing a tissue paper in a comb this effect at the beginning? Is that part of the overdub that's just don playing okay okay yeah very trippy i guess yeah tell me a little more about the process of working with jad and how this changed from your initial conception jad is so prolific i thought i wrote a lot of lyrics and then you know every once in a while give don a giant pile just for kicks to hold on to and to archive as we would say but when you work with jad fair i mean he writes a, a year's worth of lyrics and he comes in with a stack two feet high and it's fun to go through them and to see what he's come up with and to what I can add to it perhaps. So we mixed a lot of songs that we had planned to record a different way, but then would 
mix choruses and verses. He'd write one, I'd write one. It wasn't planned that way. We literally, it wasn't the cut-up method either. It was just like we laid the lyrics out and go, this looks good here, this fits in good here, this fits in good here. You sing this one, I'll sing that one. There's no ego or anything, you know, involved at all. It was just wonderful, friendly environment working with with Jad every time, and and that was true with our new record too. It was just like we're all good friends, you know. There was no animosity. There wasn't a nasty word said the entire recordings, you know. Everybody had a big smile on their face and got kind of out there and just brought the new record to life because of everybody had a big smile on their face. Does that make any sense? But it was. Everybody Everybody was so happy during these recordings because they were so happy that they were working together for the first time. Again, I'm not a musician, but I think I have the ability to put musicians together who normally wouldn't play together and coming up with music that everybody's really happy about. So would this have been just sticking a comb my hair with my hand a little bit more a first take with dual vocal? It was a first take with dual vocals. Absolutely. Jad doesn't like to sit around in the studio. And neither do I, to tell you the truth. But really, Jad, he'll get itchy. So it's like boom, 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 next, 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 because he is so prolific and he's got so much going on that he's thinking about both musically and, more importantly, lyrics-wise, that all those songs you know, were recorded very quickly, some of them being short and thinking perhaps that we would do longer versions of them. But we like the punk aesthetic that we learned so well you know, especially me, since I moved to New York right when punk hit in New York. I, it couldn't have been better timing. I, I just embraced it so much. And although it's not a major part of the scene back then, eventually took those work ethics and incorporated it into the music that I enjoy and make now. Can you say anything about this main lyrical theme? I comb my hair with my hand. Like, what is this? What does this even mean? What is the stance? It's like Dead Man's Curve. It's kind of like a Jan and Dean song. And to be quite honest with you, I haven't used a comb in well over 25 years. And I combed my hair with my hand this morning. Well, and just that it's that that kind of, I'm your loving man, you know, this this Elvis approach. But then combining with the screaming, and, you know, and the fact that when you kind of get to the bridge or something, you know, if it's neat, it's neat. If it's for fools, it's for fools. Like, that's no longer something that if you were saying it to a woman you're trying to seduce, that... <laughs> Like, what would you even say? <laughs> but yet, from a point of view of maybe the Everly Brothers. Okay. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. That's where it's coming from, I think. Everly Brothers, Jan and Dean, uh, surf music, perhaps. It's not a question of angst. Again, it's a question of trying to win over the love of someone who perhaps doesn't necessarily know you exist. It sounds very much like it's coming from the same place as the covers deconstructions from when people were shorter, that it's the, you're taking this, like you said, Jan and Dean, this sort of not an actual song by somebody else, but a general presentation style, and then just like fucking it up. General feeling, that's right. And Jad just completely blew it out. You know what I mean? At the end, you know, I, I hadn't heard what he was singing because I had the headphones on. And then we went into the booth and, you know, and heard the two together, the two takes together. We had to laugh, you know, we had to look at each other and say, we're not going to do anything to this. We're going to leave it the way it is. And we've done other songs like that too, that we haven't been in the same room. We've been in other rooms basically because I think it worked on. I comb my hair with my hand. 
And do you know what the source in terms of the inspiration of this kind of cover or semi cover? Like, is it certainly Zappa did a lot of stuff along these lines with his Ruben and the Jets and stuff like that? Certainly. One of my favorite records. I was a big Frank Zappa fan, big Captain Beefheart fan. So to be able to jump and work with the great Gary Lucas, who told so many great stories about the captain. And of course, Joe Bouchard telling stories. You know, he blew Oyster Cult open for everybody. Anybody who was anybody in rock and roll, they opened up for him. So he has 10 million stories. And it was a fun recording session because we were hearing lots of stories and Steve Shelley stories. He's all over the world, you know, and he's a big Beatles fan. Steve Shelley and, and so are Don and I. So although they didn't have anything to do with the records, you know, my heart is there. One of the first jobs I had in New York was at the home bar and that was John Lennon's favorite bar. You know what I mean? So he used to see him all the time and we weren't great friends or anything, but he's always really nice to me and nice to everybody who worked there. So Steve brought in a lot of Ringo ethics and David Lick did too. You know, David Lick's favorite drummer in the Shorters was Ringo. And I think maybe the Beatles have a lot to do with everything that goes on in my life here. So they're always in my tours. No matter where I am, they work their way in. Well, it almost seems like that first, because you can find a originator of almost any style you can come up with in the Beatles catalog somewhere. But in terms of this breaking down and screwing around that this party punk thing, you know my name, look up the number. <laughs> exactly. One of my faves. I'm beginning to hear all the outtakes now that people have stolen put on the internet and that kind of thing. And, and I, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. It's amazing to hear all these Beatles songs we've never heard before and just how tremendous they are that they thought that they, they were just throwaways. You hear what's going on there and you go, oh, geez, wow, that's amazing. Um, still a major fan. I wish John could be here in New York to witness what's going on right now. <laughs> I'd be interested to hear what he would have to say about all this. Well, as another Lou Reed, New York touchstone, of course, Lou Reed is often mentioned in the context of your work. And uh, our last song, Claudine, seems the most, actually, the more I listened to it, it, it seemed more of a Jonathan Richman than a Lou Reed vocal approach. Oh, that's <laughs> nice of you to say. <laughs> Being a big fan of Jonathan's, absolutely. He's still with us and making great music. And But, you know, like when Transformer hit Detroit, my life changed considerably and quite a few people also. I was a Velvet Underground fan, but I became a, a major Lou Reed fan and never met him. Unfortunately so, but got to see him a few times. And now even listening to Lou Reed records that I didn't like when they came out, I'm um, listening to them now. I really like, and I understand now what's going on. And and there's so many different types of music that he does, especially in the last 10 years of his life that people were not giving good reviews to that I think are absolutely amazing, including Coney Island Baby, which I think is one of the greatest records now because of my uh he was the king of the mermaid parade i don't know if you know that there's a mermaid parade in coney island every year we just had debbie harry kurt stein they were the king and queen this year and we had lou reed and laurie anderson in one year that was amazing it was brilliant that they came out and were put through such <laughs> craziness i respect him very very much and after archiving his estate for laurie i got to know him even better by digging deep into his soul by going through his things and seeing how things 
played out and how songs were made and the influences upon him and love him, love him, love him, and miss him, miss him, miss him, even though I never met him. So Claudine, I don't know, I can hear besides the vocal approach, some debts owed to the more melodic portion of the Lou Reed catalog. I was a little surprised the bass player from the Blue Oyster Cult is settling down and doing this fairly nice little rock song. <laughs> you aren't kidding, really. Joe is amazing on, the, on this. This was done very, very quickly in maybe two takes, something like that. I told them how I wanted it to go, and they played it just like it was in my head. And it was like, wow, that's it. Let's do it and do the vocals and call it a day. But I don't know, seismically and, and sound-wise, it was Don who came up with that brilliant sound that Claudine has. Claudine, the one that's probably the most XTC squeeze-friendly song on it. It seems like that's the one they're playing the most. And I'm really, really happy about that. It's one of my favorite, favorite songs I've ever written, probably. And that just... That came to me on the bus when I was taking the express bus. I just wrote it down exactly the way that it is right now. I didn't edit it at all and went in with Don and Don's the one who brought it to life. Really special record, beautiful ensemble. Hope you do get to do another one of these things. And thanks so much for uh, spending some time talking to us about it. No, thank you so much. Uh, really, really nice talking to you. And I hope I get out to Wisconsin in the fall and enjoy the leaves and the, uh, the cheese. All right, here's Claudine. out in front and we'll spend the day together pretending what we're not and we'll enjoy the weather because it's sunny and it's hot so put away the sweater Claudine let your hair hang or let your hair hang down Let your head hang down Because I don't know you well oh, But sooner or later You'll be sure to tell me What's on your mind, yeah What's on your mind, yeah What's on your mind, yeah Claudine, Claudine She kills me with her every step She's feeling things we might regret said to me, see the things inside of me, remember what you always want, you'll be sure to tell me what's on your mind, yeah, what's on your mind, yeah, what's on your mind, yeah. I'll put Claudine on the spot, I'm so glad I met her, she's everything I'm not, and you know I won't forget her. She's everything I want, and I hope we stick together. Claudine, let your hair hang, I'll let your hair hang down. Claudine, let your hair hang, I'll let your hair hang down. I don't know you well, yeah, but sooner or later, You'll be sure to tell me what's on your mind, yeah What's on your mind, yeah What's on your mind, yeah Claudine, let your hair hang 
Damn, another super nice guy. Such a history interacting in the music world, being influenced. And because he doesn't do the arrangements, my talk with him was entirely free of. And there's where the tambourine comes in, right? But don't worry, we'll have more of that coming in future episodes. So check out Kim's album, Plum Plum, and go to Nakedly Examined Music for more episodes. You can follow us on Facebook, follow me on Twitter. Heck, if you're a musician, friend me on Facebook. You can find out about my music at marklint.com or look up Mark Lint's Dry Folk on Facebook for current activities and recent video. If you enjoy this, then why would you not want a small amount of your monetary love to flow towards this project? You can do that at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Next time, Bay Area Beatlesque singer-songwriter David Brookings. I can't wait to introduce you to him. If you'd like to suggest a guest, suggest yourself as a guest, or have any comments whatsoever about the show, please email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I have had an inspiring musical week, not because I'm writing new stuff, but because I've been digitizing old cassettes, like live gigs from my college band, recordings of me as a kid talking, recordings of my father, Bob Linsenmeyer, who is an authentic San Francisco early 60s folk dude and provided the foundation for what I am musically today. So I hope this podcast helps you feel as inspired as I do. Until next time, keep on musicking. This is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.